The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. Today's buzz, Invisibles. I know you can't see me, it's radio, but we're talking about something a lot bigger here. Visible healthcare wearables. You know what I'm talking about. The Fitbits, the other wristbands, the watches. Everywhere you look, it seems they're popping up on somebody's wrist, somewhere in a store window. They seem to be just getting to be part of our culture. But what if your particular lifestyle preference calls for health tracking devices that are not quite so obvious? You don't want people to know you've got that wristband on. You want to get the benefit of the tracking and sending the data to the right people at the right time. But, gee, you really don't want to make a big advertisement about it. Well, guess what? Take heart. Invisible or almost invisible healthcare wearables are now entering the market. Yes, they are. What are they doing? They're hoping to gain your trust and help improve your healthcare outcomes. So let's just take a look. There might be something soon coming to a store or a healthcare provider like near you, like uh, underclothing heart rate tracking strips. What will they be able to do? Well, track your heart rate, probably your blood pressure, and they might even be able to track detect and report epileptic seizures and send the information to your designated contact people, maybe a physician, a family member, a coworker, whatever. Then we might even have smart pills. Wow, I'd like one of those. I'd like to be smarter right now. They can measure blood pressure, pH, body temperature. And how about some super thin, we call them tattoo thin strips that you can put on your skin under anything that will store your healthcare data and wait for it, wait for it. They might even deliver medications to you. Wow. So the question is, as this new market opens up, how hard or easy is it for these players in this new industry to launch innovative health devices like these and gain, what do they need? They need profit. They need market share. They need to be sustainable. So we're going to talk about the industry of health wearables, the next breakthrough. I have a great panel of experts today waiting in the wings very patiently, maybe impatiently, to join us and share their knowledge, their wisdom, and their insights. First up, I'm very pleased to welcome Harry Greenspun, MD. He's the director of the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions, and Harry has sent me a Harry Greenspun original quote, and I know it's original because it's been quoted in Forbes a couple times, and here's the quote. Just because I have a fitness app on my phone, it doesn't make me an athlete. Harry Greenspun, welcome to Coffee Break with Game Changers. How are you today? Uh, Bonnie, doing great, and thanks for having me on the show. Delighted. Talk to me. Interesting quote. So what does it mean if I have a fitness app on my phone? Probably not a lot. Talk to me, Dr. Greenspun. 
Well, you know, one of the very interesting things that we're finding is that there's a, obviously a tremendous enthusiasm for new technologies and new apps, and, and there's been sort of this um, you know, expectation that um, these are going to improve healthcare. And, you know, in, in the healthcare world, we actually rely on evidence. So, you know, like I say, just because I have a fitness app and my phone doesn't make me an athlete, I mean, I have lots of things to track exercise, but it actually requires me uh, to go out and, uh, and go for a jog, go for a walk, go for a bike ride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because I have a diabetes app on my phone, it's not going to lower my hemoglobin A1C. It's not necessarily going to help me with my heart disease. It's not going to help me with a lot of other things unless we actually demonstrate that it has some effectiveness because there's, um, a, you know, a lot of hope and a lot of promise in these devices. Uh, but we really need to understand whether they really truly do the sort of things um, that we want them to do uh, and also that their manufacturers claim they will do. Interesting, Harry. As you're speaking, I'm thinking the word participation or collaboration is required. As you say, just having it on your phone doesn't do anything unless you use it. You have to create that data. You have to get it into that app somehow. I'm thinking I might have flour and sugar, excuse the expression, and great vanilla and eggs in my kitchen somewhere. But unless I put them together, I'm not going to have an award-winning cake. Are we on the same page there? Oh, definitely. And you know, it's really a matter of use. And one of the most interesting things about many of these devices um, is that they really do encourage that use and collaboration. Many of us have had sort of an old school pedometer that tracked your steps, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until the uh, newer fitness trackers, which made it automatic and made it social and put you on the leaderboard, actually motivated people to, um, uh, to actually go out and use them and, and derive some benefit. Thank you very much, Harry. Great introduction to the topic. I appreciate your joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. We'll be talking with you a lot more later. Let me bring on our second panelist. He is Scott Lundstrom, the IDC Group Vice President and General Manager for Health Insights, Financial Insights, and Government Insights. Scott is a busy, busy man. And Scott sent me a quote from William Gibson. Those of you scratching your heads, William Ford Gibson is an American-Canadian speculative fiction novelist and essayist who's been called the noir, that's black or dark, the noir prophet of the cyberpunk subgenre. Wow. And here's the quote. The future is, I'm already amazed. I don't think he needs a Fitbit. I think he is a Fitbit. The future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Scott Lundstrom, welcome. How are you today? Oh, thanks for having me, Bonnie. And it's it's a wonderful day here on the East Coast. The sun is shining. I know. Where are you, by the way? Uh, I'm in the Boston area. Okay, well, I'm on Long Island, and if I go out my window and wave really, really hard and stand on the roof here, I think you might be able to see me. So, hello, Scott. So, talk to me, Scott. Interesting quote. We've heard it before, but very interesting in the healthcare wearables context. So, talk to me. How come uh, William Gibson got on the show with you today? Sure, yeah. And I think, you know, it really speaks to, to kind of the duality we, we see in the wearables market. I, I think, you know, as you indicated in the intro, so much of the excitement now is is kind of in the fitness and, and wellness and, and even fashion. You know, these are consumer electronics. These are offered mm-hmm. in the checkout lines at Best Buy and Walmart. Um, and, and they're starting as a real and expensive consumer technology. And I think often this is the way disruptive technologies start. Think of the PCs, all right? Who had the first Commodores? Who had the first Osbournes? These were hobbyists. These weren't enterprises. And yet, look at the impact that had. And, and to me, the attractive part of the Gibson quote is we look at what's happening in kind of the fitness community. And, and while it's interesting, I, I think the, the health analyst in me says, but all the economic impact is at the other end of the spectrum. It's not these young fitness-oriented fashionistas. 
It's the chronically ill elderly. It's the folks that would help with aging in place. It's the underserved populations in healthcare deserts that are really going to see a huge improvement through remote monitoring and risk-based monitoring. And then there's some great research out of medical uh, re- uh, organizations like Partners and others about the value of remote monitoring in advanced cardiac disease in care for the elderly. So uh, I think, you know, the Gibson quote's very appropriate. You know, what we're seeing in the Fitbit today is going to be this huge, remarkably exciting technology market 10 years from now where we're, in effect, trying to instrument our parents to improve the quality of their life. Very, very interesting, Scott, the the idea that cool, disruptive technology. You're right. Early adopters are the cool kids. They're the cool people. I, I have a young friend in his early, he just turned 23. I, I have a couple of, I produce and host a couple of uh, cable TV shows here on Long Island. And one of my previous directors, who is now all grown up at age 23, came to teach us a class on making videos and doing really high-level editing in iMovie on your iPad. And he's standing there, we're all wishing him happy birthday. Ben, how are you? And he says, I had to do it. I took my birthday money and I bought an, an Apple Watch. And I'm saying to myself, well, I don't know anybody in my age group was wearing one of those, but Ben said, he said, yeah, probably shouldn't have, but boy, does this feel cool. And I'm thinking, yeah, so there's your new technology, there's your disruptive, and he has, he has uh, an, an ecosystem, if you will, of people he needs to be cool with, he needs to impress. So, it is the coolness that's attracting the attention, but you're right. It's the chronically ill. It's the aged. It's the people who probably don't, don't even have, know what an iPhone is. or may not even have an internet connection, and they're the ones who really will benefit. Agree? Yes? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Good perspective. We've got a lot of good stuff on the table here, and we haven't even gotten out of our opening segment. Thank you, Scott Lundstrom. And let's welcome our third panelist. He is Bernard Schweitzer, head of SAP HealthLink, which is a solution improving the care process of chronic diseases by connecting patients and doctors based on medical sensor data, which is exactly what we're talking about. And Bernard sent me a quote from Helen Keller. I didn't know that her middle name was Adams and that she was, in addition to being the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. She was also a political activist. I didn't know that. And the film The Miracle Worker was made many, many, many eons ago in the last millennium about her life. Here's the quote. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Well, that says it all. Bernard Schweitzer, welcome to Coffee Break. How are you? I'm fine, Bonnie. Hi, good morning from Germany. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting quote because I think it reflects pretty much what the wearables health market is about. So I think it's still an adventure, and as Scott pointed out rightfully, technology is there, but is the technology already in a stage where people really like to use it, not just the young people, the people that are the early adopters, but is it something which people really accept, and will people really use it long-term? I actually also bought a a health tracker a couple of, of weeks ago, and obviously the first days you're really excited. You look at the data day by day, but I think your motivation sometimes really diminishes uh, month after month and week after week. So how can we really stay, uh, keep those people engaged? And I think this is particularly important if you talk about the elderly people that are probably not as excited about technology as I am. And how can we design programs, and not only technology programs, but also engage the entire care community in order to really deliver these tangible health outcomes that the industry promises. So I think our journey that we have ahead as an industry is really a daring adventure. And if we don't take that journey, I think it will be nothing. 
Very, very interesting, Bernard. More great comments. I'm, I'm thinking back to a TV show I did with my mom, who is now 98 plus. She still co-hosts a show with me. And we invited some of her primary care doctors to come on TV with us a couple of years ago. And the topic was, why do baby boomers who go to doctor appointments with their elderly parents, why do the boomers have conversations with the doctor as though their parent was not even in the room? Yes, she did this and he needs to do that. Uh, Harry Greenspan, I have a feeling you might be familiar with this as a physician, uh, that, that we make them invisible. And now we're saying they can benefit from this new wearable technology, but somebody's going to have to get them to adopt it or just buy it and put it on them and say, Ma, keep this on for 24 hours and I'll take care of the rest. <laughs> uh, Bernard or Harry, you want to make a comment on that? Yeah, you know, Bonnie, great point. This is Harry. You know, one of the uh, one of the key things is is when you know, um, as uh, uh, as Doug mentioned, you know, we need to move this from the healthiest to the sickest, and it also means moving it to the elderly and people who are not used to using these devices. So we need to sort of rethink who are the um, individuals who are going to be the actual users. Is it going to be the individual themselves, an elderly person? Is it going to be the adult child who's helping take care of them? Is it going to be some other care coordinator or caregiver and make it invisible to that person? So, again, with many of these devices, um, you know, they've been designed for young, active, active people. And, you know, the FDA recently gave some guidance to the industry saying, look, if you want to, you know, use these things in healthcare, they've got to be able to be useful for the elderly. They've got to be useful when the power goes out. They've got to be useful when you lose your connectivity. Uh, a bunch of different things um, that mm-hmm. uh, make them more suitable for health care. Thank you, Harry. Bernard, any, any comments on my note about, uh, about trying to get the adoption from one generation to the other that might not really know about it or care or want to keep yeah, it on? Yeah, yeah just, just let me add, um, Bonnie, I think very much uh, is true what Harry said, and I think it's also very important to involve the doctor and the physician into that process. Mm-hmm. So what we saw when we talked to patients and physicians, physicians, especially the family doctors, have a very, very high level of trust. So if they recommend something, people really tend to take it. And if you have probably the younger generation uh, visiting the, the family doctor with their elderly parents, I think that really increases the stickiness and the willingness to adopt such a new technology. Good, good points. So back to my my last part of my opening, my monologue, and I said, how easy or hard is it for players in this burgeoning healthcare devices industry to launch innovative devices and gain sustainable, profitable market share? Sounds to me like it's a multi-pronged, possibly uphill battle for a long time to come. Anybody want to agree or disagree just quickly? Harry, Scott, Bernard, what do you think? Uh, yeah, but yeah, this is Harry. I mean, again, it's it's a challenge because we have some a lot of really interesting technologies. But you know, healthcare is complicated. It's a very complicated mm-hmm. regulatory environment. Um, the uh, the concern over risk of being uh, uh, classified as a medical device and what the implications are. On the one hand, that makes it more complicated for people to bring things to market. At the same time, it would permit uh, much greater impact on healthcare. Uh, so that's something that uh, you know innovators and investors have to bear in mind. Thank you. Scott, any comments from the IDC perspective? Yeah, I, I, I do think there are some, some uphill battles here as we move kind of from a consumer-centric market. And, you know, if you think about wearables as kind of this hip consumer thing, well, th- there's plenty mm-hmm. of money for that. Millennials will invest. 
So now we look at elderly. Well, now we have to appeal to family and physicians, and certainly our research suggests that, um, you know, the best strategy uh, for a wearable is, is to be physician-recommended. In 80% of those cases, we see the consumer make a purchase decision. Um, that, that's four or five times the influence of any other media or advisor in the process. So, you know, you have to get the docs using and consuming data opens up two really, I think, very formidable challenges to this market. Um, the first is who pays. Reimbursements, um, and it's a really unclear. Um, we haven't helped ourselves the way we've structured reform because now we have an environment where hospitals care deeply for 30 days because they don't want you to readmit. So you will see more and more wearables used in monitoring during those 30-day readmission windows that providers are now so concerned about. The challenge then is how do we transition that to the payer? And I think payers are less likely to invest in in-home technologies because they don't know that they're going to have that patient the following year. Um, you know, there could be an exchange in the exchange. They could decide to go with another insurance provider. So, you know, Honestly, we have to figure out the economics of how are we going to equip a home, how are we going to consume that data, and then I think most especially how are we going to secure it. And, you know, this dark secret in the wearables market is that none of these devices are HIPAA compliant because none of them view themselves as handling health information. They're handling fitness data that's owned by the consumers. Consumers aren't a party to HIPAA. The minute that device is provided by a payer, the minute that device is transmitting data direct to a physician or a medical record, now HIPAA comes into play. And that means we have to completely review the security environment here. Wow. Wow. We're doing a lot of topics on privacy, and it sounds like it just entered this discussion. Thank you very much. Guess what? We're going to move this discussion back to Harry Greenspun. We're going to get completely off the topic. Although if you want to tell me something healthy, that's fine. And I'm going to ask the three of you the most important question to this theme of this show, which is Coffee Break with Game Changers. What are you drinking today? What's in your cup? Or tell me a really fun favorite beverage travel story, whatever you want, dealer's choice. Harry Greenspun, what are you drinking? Well, you know, uh, thankfully right now I, I'm drinking coffee, but, uh, you know, I travel internationally a lot, and I'm always impressed by what people serve me for breakfast to go with my uh, meal. And uh, probably most uh, famously in the Czech Republic, I was given a, a large uh, a large glass of beer to go with my uh, with my breakfast. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's nice to see the, uh, the, the local culture coming out. Oh, what kind of a beer was it? Do we have any details? I want to know if I ever start drinking beer with breakfast, what does Dr. Greenspun recommend firsthand? Well, you know, the, the Czechs are really, you know, famous for inventing a lot of beer. And, uh, you know, Budvar is, uh, is one of the towns in, uh, uh, in the Czech Republic. So, um, you know, great place if you like beer. I can't say that I'm a big fan uh, of beer for breakfast. So, uh, you know, similarly in other countries, you know, I've, I've had uh, tequila for breakfast in Mexico. And, uh, you know, you name it, I've, I've had it because I believe in living locally. I, I, I love that. Living locally, that's cool. Thank you very much. Scott Lundstrom, I don't know if you can top that. Don't worry about beer for breakfast. What are you drinking right now? Or tell me a great beverage story. Scott? Sure. No. So so I, I will admit to being a little boring here. I'm starting this morning the way I do most with a, an extra large Dunkin' hot regular. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about what Harry says, and I, I do have what I think is, is uh, kind of a unique tradition. And, and I wind up... Asia a couple times a year and staying for a few weeks and you know food is one of the things I miss most when I'm over there so I have a, a ritual where 
when I get back in the U.S., usually the first airport I connected in the U.S., I seek out a bourbon and a burger. And, um, and that's been my traditional back to the USA meal, whether it's 8.30 in the morning or 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> gee, gee, you're not boring at all, my friend. What's the bur- what kind of bourbon? You want to drop a brand on us? <clears throat> oh, I, I mean, Maker's Mark, but I'm really open. I, I, I don't think I've ever said no to a bourbon based on a brand name. <laughs> anybody, anybody traveling with Scott, just remember that. Bourbon and burger. By the way, are we talking turkey burger, bison burger, ostrich burger, beef burger? Oh, Give no, me a clue. No, real beef. Real beef. Real beef. The real deal. <laughs> thank you very much. Now we know a lot about you, probably more than you wanted us to know, but thank you. Bernard Schweitzer, talk to me. What are you drinking? You're in Germany right now. What time of the day is it, Bernard? Oh, it's late afternoon, uh, 5 o'clock, and I'm having a gre- cup of green tea next to me. Um, but when I was traveling just last week in, in the Bavarian Alps, uh, I obviously went to the beer garden after a big, big hike and had a cool wheat beer, Weizen beer, which is a very, very traditional German beer. And if you sit there, if you view the mountains, the sunset over the mountains, um, that is beautiful and gives you uh, a fresh mind and, and a lot of food for thought for what is uh, up to come in, in your profession as well as in your private life. Well, wow, that was very, very profound. By the way, I have to tell the three of you, a panelist on one of our two radio shows yesterday, so I can't remember which show because they were only an hour, two hours apart, uh, somebody said that he was becoming a student of ice cubes, that ice is so important. And Scott, you will appreciate this, I think, when it comes to bourbon, if you don't take it neat. He said most restaurants or bars just put, what he said, something like crappy ice cubes in your drink. It waters it down. The yep. water in the ice cube might taste like God knows what. And he is trying to go for higher-end ice cubes. (laughs) It was the first time anybody talked in the coffee break segment about ice cubes. I think it's absolutely brilliant. There's an industry for someone. We will deliver frozen ice cubes of the highest quality with the best tasting water, but I digress. Guess what? You're listening to Coffee Break with Game Changers. If you're keeping track, this is episode number 185. Really? Yes. It's Wednesday, June 10th. We are live on the air here on the Business Channel. I'm very pleased and honored to be speaking with three very, very smart and insightful gentlemen, Harry Greenspun, MD, Scott Lundstrom with IDC, and Bernard Schweitzer. And I have to mention that Harry is with Deloitte. Our good friends at Deloitte always send us such wonderful panelists, and we get a lot of great people from IDC as well, trying to spread the love around here. And we're talking today about, if you haven't guessed, health, wearables. It's part two. We keep coming back with this fascinating topic. The question today is the next breakthrough, and on and on, and everything that goes with that. We've got some great tweeters here. SAP underscore healthcare is tweeting. Karen Geraldo, one of our big fans, is tweeting. And I know we're going to be seeing a lot more people at hashtag SAP Radio. So come and join the party. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Harry Greenspun, Dr. G, is going to help me open the roundtable. We're going to talk off air for just a second about what topic we're going to enter with. And then we'll start our 30-minute nonstop round table so don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial you know the drill brad out when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network 
The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com and you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Yes, we are back, and our topic today is Health Wearables Part 2, the next breakthrough. Shout out to Susan Rafizadeh at SAP for helping put this extraordinarily smart panel together. No pressure, guys, but you are sounding very smart, and I expect we're going to have a lot more great insights coming from the three of you. I'm speaking today with Harry Greenspun, MD, at Deloitte Center for Health Solutions, Scott Lundstrom, IDC Group. VP and General Manager of Health Insights, among other industry topics, and Bernard Schweitzer, Head of SAP HealthLink. Dr. Greenspun is going to help me kick off our roundtable, and Harry and I were chatting during the break and decided that we have covered so much territory on this topic already, but let's see if we can move into a new area. Harry, I'm reading from your notes here. You say, technology often solves a problem, but not the problem. And let me read one more sentence here from the notes. You say, physician workflow misaligned incentives, consumer trust, and other issues are often the real barrier and much harder to address. Harry, take me through it, please. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the uh, interesting things we see a lot of areas, it's pretty easy to, you know, go to a doctor, go to a hospital, look at healthcare, and come up with a, a really elegant technology solution to address one of these problems. But often that's not the hard thing we need to address. Uh, you know, a great example is if you look at telehealth. I mean, telehealth has been around literally for a 100 years, and it has not caught on, not for a, a lack of good technology. It's really around aligned incentives. If physicians weren't paid to do telehealth visits, they wouldn't do telehealth visits. Um, you know, similarly, you can give people apps to um, to monitor their blood sugar, but what patients really need is to you know, monitor their entire lifestyle. They need to be able to deal with their exercise and their and their diet as well as their medication. So, you know, we often introduce new technologies that solve a very narrow problem without thinking about you know how does that fit in with someone's uh, their their life flow or physician workflow? How will doctors use this? How will care coordinators use this? How will family members use this? Uh, so that's where it starts getting pretty sticky. Um, the other thing we think about, too, is that we might be really enthusiastic about um, adopting a new technology and using, uh, you know, social media to share things, and, and that sounds great, um, unless all of a sudden the problem is actually that people are reluctant to share that information. It's too private mm-hmm. for them. 
And you may see someone, for example, um, I have good friends who are getting cancer treatment and, you know, they'll check in for their appointments and you'll see them on Facebook and everyone's liking it and giving support. But mm-hmm. you know, for everyone showing up at an infusion center, there's some guy showing up at, a, at an STD clinic with multi-resistant gonorrhea who's, you know, he's not checking in saying, hey, I'm getting another shot today. I mean, there, there's yeah. some real privacy and trust issues that, uh, that transcend uh, the capabilities that we might want to put in people's hands. Very interesting. Scott Lundstrom, IDC, let's talk about this. What are your thoughts? No, I, I, I think Harry's absolutely right. And, and there is, I mean, a dark side to all this data. And, you know, for every insurance payer offering us a discount for being well, um, you know, there's another business within that payer where they're trying to find out these behavioral details of the insured to create better risk profiles. And often, even to data back to employers to talk about who are your riskiest or your most expensive employees. So there is always two sides to the data question. And, you know, the real control mechanism here is how secure is the data and who owns it? And I think these are big issues that go way beyond wearables in the U.S. health system. Um, I think many of us believe that, you know, a, a real central mistake was made in reform by not giving consumers ownership of their own data. Um, and we're going to have to come back and revisit that. And then again, I think most wearables live in this dream world where, you know, they're managing consumers data for the consumer and they ignore HIPAA. And there's a huge technical hurdle that many of them are going to have to get over to become real healthcare devices. Um, so there are some big challenges here. Um, that doesn't mean that consumers won't invest to provide this kind of technologies for their, for their parents, for their relatives. Um, I buy a remote monitoring solution for my mother. I know all the limitations of the technology. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's worth it to have a panic button with a detector that notifies me. Um, so there will be niche markets, but this holistic use of the technology to actually improve outcomes and improve long-term wellness, we have a lot of work to do to get there. And Scott, by the way, I mean, uh, yes, Scott, go ahead, Harry, sure. Sorry. Scott makes you know, some great points, and one of the interesting things around this as well is that you know consumers' level of trust in different third parties is very different. People trust their doctor, they trust right. academic medical centers, they trust mm-hmm. um, you know the FDA. You know, at the bottom of of trust, and we do a survey of consumers um, every year or so at our at our center. Um, at the bottom are is pharma, um, employers, and um, uh, and the insurance industry, and these are the <laughs> groups that are actually, as Scott mentioned, the ones that are encouraging people to. To adopt these kind of devices and and you know excited about exchanging information and these of course are the are the groups that consumers have the least trust in. Yeah, very interesting. I want to just Bernard before I get you in on this, I just want to make a comment. We were talking about data communications, sensors, Fitbits, privacy on another show a week or so ago, and somebody mentioned they had heard that there's a bank in Russia, or let me say there's a Russian bank. I'm not sure where they're located globally that will actually. Use Fitbits, they give to customers, Fitbits and Jawbone UPs, and they will use the data they get to give you, to transfer small amounts of money into a special savings account based on how healthy they find you are from the data you are sending them. Anybody ever heard of that? Harry or Scott or Bernard? Well, you know, there's really plenty of, oh, Bernard, go ahead. Bernard, Bernard. No, no. No, I've not really heard about it, but I think it's a, it's it's an interesting approach, and it also shows um, the topic of misaligned incentives. I think um, that Harry, you have also in your quote, 
And I think really getting the incentive structure right, I think, is a very, very important point. Um, as you have pointed out, there's a lot of mistrust to pharma, to insurances, which are probably the most, uh, the biggest benefiters of, of uh, analyzing health data. So how can we get the right incentives and the right trust in place? And in Germany, for instance, we also have the, the problem that physicians are not compensated for considering patient-recorded data, which uh, also is a kind of hurdle to adoption. So it's also incenting the physicians to really work with the patient in such kind of remotely engaged programs. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to comment on that, Scott or Harry? Yeah, yeah, so Bonnie, you know, this is Harry, you know, you know, we're seeing this in other industries, of course. I mean, the, um, in the auto insurance industry, for example, they're putting chips in people's cars to monitor your driving to show that you're actually a good driver. Um, and we're seeing life insurance companies um, offering discounts to people based upon uh, their types of data. So, and, and there are also websites that are set up to allow you to get rewards if you uh, behave well. Interesting, there are also um, websites that have been developed to, to allow your friends to bet against you, which for many people is actually, uh, if you say you're going to get exercise, you're saying you're going to quit smoking, um, that uh, if you fail to do so, you owe your friends money. And that for many people, it's very motivating. So it does get to the issue of personal incentives. Uh, but we're going to see more and more of this where um, you have uh, insurance companies and providers and employers saying, look, we want you to be healthy. We want you to prove it and we'll reward you for it. I think similarly, you're going to see patients who are saying, look, I'm a diabetic, but I'm, I'm religious about checking my blood sugar and taking my medication. I should get some credit for that. I can, I can prove that. So I think we'll see more activist consumers sort of um, demanding that the data they generate gets used in a way that, um, uh, that benefits them. Mm-hmm. And, and the other side to that story about the Russian bank is that they put money in a special account that gets you a 6% annual interest rate. And the only way to get that special account is if you provide your data shows them how healthy you really are and how much activity you're really generating through the device. So that is a direct benefit outcome of using the device, allowing the data to be communicated, allowing the privacy to be questionable with the bank, and then letting them give you a, a real reward. I don't know. Do you think that would work if we did more of that, those those direct rewards? Anybody? Like if you went to, yeah, let's I, say, you went to Target and they they gave you a discount on, <laughs> on your next five pairs of shoes if you could show that you're, you're really using the last pair of running shoes because you've logged so many miles. Any thought on that? Bonnie, this is, is Scott. We've done a, a number of studies around the uh, adoption of employer wellness programs and the integration of things like Fitbits and, and fuel bands in those wellness programs. And, you know, we do have employers that have programs that say, well, they have a healthy lunch line in their cafeteria. They have an, an instrumented gym. Um, and it's remarkable what an employee will do for $50 a week. And, you know, even a simple program that says, you know, you need to eat the healthy lunch four out of five days, you need to go to the gym three out of five days, they see really up increased compliance with those requests with even modest economic incentives. And I really am talking about probably an aggregate less than $1,500 a year. Um, mm-hmm. So I think especially where we can apply some metrics, where we can target individuals that would really benefit um, from, from, you know, that increase in activity, um, it is easy to motivate them. I mean, the other easy motivator is to get the physician to recommend it. And, again, I think we see that over and over again. It doesn't matter how much Nike or Walmart or Target or anyone else advertises this stuff. People don't use it until their physician recommends it. At least use it within, in, in, you know, 
really religiously, really make an effort to adopt it. You know, beyond the fitness buffs, you know, where you see average mm-hmm. people using this technology, it's almost always because a physician has recommended it. Yeah, and well, let's talk. Scott, yeah. Scott, Scott, yeah, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, Scott's point about um, uh, targeting is really important. There was a recent study by uh, by Rand would look at PepsiCo employees and found that you know the investment, the ROI in wellness on healthy employees was actually pretty low. Um, those are people generally going to do what they were going to do anyway, um, versus those who had uh, some chronic conditions or some other sorts of disease that need to be managed. There's a very high ROI um, in doing interventions there. So I think the targeting the approach, getting the right populations to get engaged, uh, is, is going to be key. And again, that's the issue around identifying the right population where you can actually make a difference. Thank you. And, uh, Bernard? Yes. Bonnie, just let me add, um, I think it's Please. not only important that a physician recommends the solution, but really also follows up with the patient and discusses uh, his or her results. Um, this follow-up in, in a study that we were conducting with one of our customers led to the result that we have um, engagement rates of about 80%. So 80% of the people that got the device are still using it uh, after two months compared to other studies where we see a drop of rates that just one in 10 consumers uses the variable every day, which is a study conducted by the Health Research Institute from PwC. Thank you. I was just looking, uh, Bernard, as you were speaking, I was noticing a, a statistic here in Scott's notes. He says most wearables up to 70% wind up lost or collecting dust in a drawer after several months. So my, my follow-up question was going to be to the panel. Uh, I, I believe it was Harry who just said if the physician recommends it, you have a higher chance of somebody using it. But how often does the physician have to check in with that patient? Not once a year. That's certainly not enough to say, hey, Mary. How's that Fitbit going? How's that heart rate tracker going? How's that walking electronic pedometer going? Uh, is the doctor supposed to call every four weeks or send an email to the patient? God forbid an email to the patient. How, do you, how does the doctor keep that, that oversight or that collaborative, yes, let's do it together? How do they do it? Yeah, but I mean- yeah, but it's a great point. And Scott was actually the one who mentioned the, uh, that a physician mm-hmm. recommends that people will get it. The, the key issue is how long people stick with things. And as a physician, I've certainly yeah. given plenty of people advice on what to do, and they'll follow it for the first day or so. Um, you know, one mm-hmm. of the most interesting things about these devices is that um, you know, uh, Nike actually has some good data on this, which showed that uh, when, you know, when you make the, uh, uh, the data collection automatic, people are more likely to stick with it. But much more importantly, when you make the data social, so the issue of the leaderboards and the incentives and, and the competition and those sort of that's when people are much more likely to stick with things. And that's, that's why you see, for example, at health clubs, people are so anxious to get um, members to join a class because if they're engaged with other people, they're more likely to keep going. And the same thing with wearables is that if you have regular check-ins with um, uh, with others, and it doesn't have to be the physician. I mean, physicians certainly um, and the healthcare providers would benefit from the data. Uh, but if the key issue is you want someone to get more exercise, they're, they're probably much more likely to stick with a program uh, if they have a lot of their friends doing it as well, and they're competing with them on a on a leaderboard and getting incentives, um, as opposed to uh, getting uh, regular feedback from a from a provider. Right. Yep, Bonnie, it's that group think. Yep. Right? Please, go ahead, I think Scott. you bring up a great point here, which is that, you know, these are, are not just devices that a physician recommends. I mean, to really 
pull value out of the technology. These really have to be more like programs. So, you know, what you're talking about, I mean, systemically, we can look at, at patients every day, every few hours from a data point of view. Um, we can determine whether they exercise today or not. We can, you know, potentially determine whether they took their meds today or not. Um, you know, we have kind of gaps in we can look for, we can look at, at gaps in, in ongoing, um, you know, therapeutic process here. Um, but I do think there's a whole new class of employee that becomes required here where we're either using nurse practitioners or call center employees or even maybe cognitive systems, you know, direct from the analytics to go find these examples, these instances where maybe someone needs a nudge or a reminder. Or, mm-hmm. and, and that stuff needs to be coming on a regular basis. Um, you know, I think the other thing we find in chronic disease is these patients often have a quarterly or maybe even more frequent visit with one of their specialists. And, you know, in, in the case of, let's say, diabetes, if your endocrinologist is actually using data from the wearables or, or from your, your blood glucometer every time you meet, you're much more likely to do that on a regular basis. Okay, all good points. And gentlemen, I want to steer us back to my opening when I talked about the wearables now are going toward the invisible, near invisible side, the tattoo thin strips, the underclothing heart rate strips, the smart pills. Only you know how many smart pills you took and how smart you think you're going to be in 24 hours. But I digress. What, what are we seeing? What are the three of you seeing in terms of the move in the industry to make these less obvious? Which might be, there might be some stigma attached for people who don't want that group peer pressure. They don't want everybody to know they're wearing something because that means you gotta do it. You gotta do it regularly. You gotta allow the, the data privacy issue to slip. You gotta share the data with somebody. Maybe you wanna find the report. What if the report isn't good? There's a lot going on there. So what if you wanna keep it really private? Do you think this will help with adoption and longevity? And as Bernard said in his notes, the stickiness of the devices. Anybody wanna tackle that? I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, well, you know, one of the interesting things is that, um, you know, we've been talking so much about, you know, Fitbits and Jawbones. Now, these, those are really in many ways sort of commodity devices at this point. It's kind of, mm-hmm. the, it's kind of generation one of tracking your activity. The, the much more interesting stuff is in the biosensing wearables where looking at your posture, looking at your, um, your, your skin's galvanic skin response uh, for stress, looking at um, uh, heart rate issues, looking at a lot of other issues like that. Um, which are in, even talking about the, uh, uh, you know, contact lenses that will measure your blood glucose. So, mm. uh, you know, in some ways, uh, the devices themselves are just being applied to places which are much less visible than they were before. I mean, I've got an activity monitor sitting on my belt, um, and I've had one on my wrist before, but if I were monitoring my heart rate, obviously that would be much more, uh, uh, much more discreet. So the data mm. that we're getting from these di- devices is, is going to change where, uh, change where they are. Um, and it's going to be providing a lot more insight. And uh, your point about wanting to keep it private gets mm-hmm. more important as these devices get more uh, invasive, I should say, because, you know, I'm happy to share my steps with you. I might be less interested in sharing my blood sugar with a lot of people. Good point. Who else wants to comment on that? I'm sure you have something else to say. Who's got it? Yeah, I, I do think we see whole new classes of devices here. I mean, uh, you know, the, the smart pill bottles, the consumable 
cameras or devices to eliminate the need for colonoscopies. I mean, lots of interesting devices. I mean, one of the most interesting technologies I've really looked at lately is, um, you know, the, the Google proposal for a contact that measures blood sugar. And, you know, you talk to diabetics that don't measure sugar, and it's overwhelmingly because they hate the whole pinprick blood drop exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, to make that monitoring automatic in the background without pain, without needle sticks, um, you're going to get a more compliant patient. Um, Also, you know, I I think we have wearables as art and wearables as fashion. I mean, we've talked about that. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, my my mother wears this medallion now. I mean, that could very easily be replaced by something that looks more like a piece of jewelry, more like a regular wristwatch. Um, So I think we'll see some of that. I mean, the fashion stuff has just begun. Um, And then, you know, places like advanced cardiac monitoring to be in the clothing, to actually be able to to put, you know, sensors in, in the particular locations that we need to do a real, uh, you know, 3D view of, of what is the health of the heart. Um, you know, these, these are all new opportunities. So I think it's, it's you know, it's kind of exciting. Um, and there will be kind of a new generation of wearables, but then also a, I think a generation of consumables, which will, will be a very different market as well. You know, as you're speaking uh, and answering my question, I'm thinking that people might want to have, want to take advantage of their bragging rights. Hey, you'll never guess what I'm wearing under the sleeve of this blouse. And they peel back the sleeve and they say, look, would you believe this is checking my blood glucose? This is checking my heart rate. My doctor's getting this. My daughter told me this is the latest and greatest. I'm on the forefront of wearable device, healthcare device technology. I'm really cool. And this is an 85-year-old talking to her her 88-year-old friend and saying, look how cool I am. Can you imagine that the bragging rights would come out even though though we think it's because they want the privacy. Now they're saying, look how terrific my life is. <laughs> Do you agree? Anybody? Well, Bonnie, I, I think, yeah. Go ahead. One important thing to think about is that, yeah, I mean, as, as interesting as it is, we also got to think about what do we really need to measure? If I wanted to measure yeah. the, you know, the, the health and security of my parents, you know, on one hand, I could you know, have a 24-7 heart monitor my dad. The flip side is maybe I just install a little sensor on their refrigerator that if they happen to open their fridge by you know, 9 o'clock in the morning, I'll give them a call saying, hey, you guys feeling okay? Is any, everything all right? Um, and you know, uh, though we have the, the ability to measure lots of things related, related to you know, your physiology, um, you know, we may do better, you know, again, measuring the fridge, measuring the water meter, um, you know, having a sensor on the floor, um, you know, those kind of things that will provide uh, a more accurate uh, and more actionable um, kind of data. Very interesting. So you're saying get away from the wearables and get into the lifestyle surroundings, the environmentally planted devices that nobody has to touch or wear that that track what, something that they do that indicates what's going on. Very, very interesting. Bernard, I want to get you in on this. Thoughts on what we've been talking about? Yeah, just let me add on that. I think convenience is really key. So I guess um, no one really wants to manually sync any stuff. Um, fashion, I think, is very important. I really would like to look good, and I would like to have the stuff being easily operated. And what I think uh, is also a big, big pain, and we see that in studies as well, is always charging the devices. So you have to charge it if you look, go for the new watches uh, on a day-by-day basis, and I think this is really painful. 
So um, if we see technologies like uh, devices that are being charged from the um, Wi-Fi network, I think this is the way we need to go. Or if you just put the stuff off yourself um, and lay it on your desk and it's just charging. Like, for instance, IKEA has brought out a, a kind of charging table where you can just put your your mobile phone anywhere. I think these are the kind of things we need to go. So having the stuff powered, getting charging under control, getting convenience for the end user so that I, in the ideal world, don't have to do anything. And I like the example that I probably just sense something by opening a fridge or, or mm-hmm. having a, a pressure-sensitive floor, and it always has to look good. I think these are the kind of three key ingredients. So convenience, fashion, as well as kind of um, an always on and always uh, charged stuff um, based probably on, on, on Wi-Fi systems. Very interesting. Good points. Harry, do you think convenience will be the selling point in getting people to keep using devices or or not want to remove them from the floor or the refrigerator or the whatever, the bathroom door? Do you think that convenience will make things blend into lifestyle where you just don't have to pay attention and the device is doing its job 24-7? Well, convenience is certainly necessary, right? And people really want, you know, seamless integration in what they do. People don't want to have to gather up tons and tons of devices and find, you know, multiple different chargers and, um, you know, have to, um, you know, have to get data different places and use multiple apps. So, yeah, convenience is, is going to be key for people to continue uh, to make sure they don't get frustrated away from it. I think more importantly, along with being convenient, it really actually has to have some measurable results. I actually feel that by doing this, something is better. I'm doing better. I'm, I'm getting better results. I'm healthier. I'm avoiding hospitalizations. I'm, you know, taking fewer medications. I can get out and do more. Those are the things that really have the long-term impact on people because we've seen over and over again um, in almost every industry that if people simply just collect data and then have to send it off and don't get any results from it, they very quickly get tired and frustrated of, of doing so. So um, I think the results are really going to be um, uh, what's going to drive the long-term use. Okay, I have a question. Thank you for the three of you. If I told you you could walk into a store today and get the latest and greatest wearable, invisible healthcare device, and I'm not asking you to tell me anything about your personal health profile, what device would you get for your spouse or one of your children? Let's let's make it not personal here. What would you get that you think would be on the market right now or in the next couple of weeks or months? What would be so valuable for you to help a family, a dear family member, parent, child, spouse, significant other with their health? What would you pick? Um, and you can tell me if the question's off base. We'll just pass to the next one. Harry Greenspun, what would you pick from the shelf? You know, it really depends who's it for, right? So like for my, my dad, for example, has some heart trouble and other stuff. And ultimately, what's important for him is actually his perfusion, right? So if you imagine how pink his, his skin is, his nails, and his, and his uh, oxygen saturation, those sort of things would be very helpful, um, I think, to understand, you know, whether he's uh, – and again, it's not a moment-to-moment thing. It's a progressive thing. I think for my wife, what I really – my wife is incredibly fit. I would like to get a heart rate monitor for me that she could look at remotely to see if she's pushing me too hard that I'm about to collapse when we're exercising <laughs> together. I think that would be the most useful for me. I love it. Thank, thank you for playing, Harry Greenspun. Uh, we'll be sure your wife gets a link to the podcast of this, and we'll tell her exactly where you said that. Now let's move to Scott Lundstrom. What would you pick off the shelf, and for whom? Sure. Um, actually, I would love a device that would limit the... The, or, or would help manage 
volume at which my four children listen to their headphones. I think they're all going to be deaf by the, the time they graduate college. And, uh, and I would like something that would at least tell them on that screen that they're so fixated on that they're actively destroying their hearing at the current volume level. Oh, Dad, that's a wonderful dream you've got there. That's an absolute. At the same time, while you're doing that, why don't you? Why wouldn't you wish for a some kind of a device that would show you when they're posting something they shouldn't post on Facebook that's going to stick with their name and their reputation for the rest of their life? But I digress again. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that would with, be great too. Yeah. Wouldn't that yeah, be great? That helping them, them from themselves device. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely for the dear loving parent who really cares but doesn't want to make it too obvious. <laughs> Bernard Choice who joined the party here. What would you pick off the shelf and for whom? I never asked this question before, but it seems to be a popular party game. So Bernard, talk to us. Actually, I'm having two small little boys, so they are just starting to brush their teeth themselves. So I buy a smart teeth toothbrush where I can see whether they have uh, spent enough time brushing their teeth uh, as well as seeing whether it's the right pressure or not. So that would make my life in the evening much, much easier. I love it. Wow. Never thought I would get such wonderfully candid answers from the three of you. And guess what? Talking about candor, I'm going to tell you candidly that we have five minutes left till the end of the show. I'm going to selfishly save about 45 seconds for myself for closing. And that means we are now lurching headlong, hopefully safely, into home plate for the crystal ball predictions round. Almost lost it there for a second. Harry Greenspun, I'm going to tell you I'm giving you exactly 60 seconds for your predictions. Look into that crystal ball, polish it off, and tell us what do you see in the year 2020 or any time before or after that in the future where we would be saying something different about health wearables and the next breakthrough. Harry Greenspun, prediction 60 seconds, go. So I think what we'll see in the, in the next few years is this movement, again, from fitness into health of these devices that are going to become much more sophisticated, um, easily interoperable, uh, where the data is flowing freely and actionable, um, that the, uh, the setup for these is in, almost invisible to the user and therefore could be used by an individual, by a caregiver and others. And we'll start seeing these devices being used for remote monitoring, for transitioning people from the hospital to the home, uh, and really making an impact on health. Again, not just, uh, not just on, uh, on, on the healthy people, but actually really improving the health of the, of the sickest among us, uh, which is going to really transform how healthcare is delivered. Thank you very much. Scott Lundstrom, I will give you the same 60 seconds for predictions. Go. Sure. So by 2020, I think we see remote monitoring prescribed as part of the discharge plan for many patients, especially those with things like COPD and, and chronic heart failure. Um, for 2030, uh, I'm, I'm hoping we have things that are more consumable, like nanobots that'll clean the plaque out of your arteries and uh, mm. surgical um, devices that can be implanted. But that's a little further off. But I do think we go from remote monitoring to remote interventions pretty quickly in the next two decades. Thank you very much. And Bernard Schweitzer calling in from Germany. We appreciate you doing that at the end of the day. Bernard, 60 seconds, predictions, go. Yeah, but in 2020, I see smart textiles that are worn like normal clothes that are charged by the motion of the body and that do not only sensor data but also help to treat certain conditions. So, for instance, um, produce vitamin D by spectrally adjusted lightening in of, the, of the textile itself 
and all the data being shared uh, through a cloud solution between patients and doctors, and by that moving from a kind of reactive care model to a preventive care model where doctors based on alerts can easily and uh, early enough uh, interact with their patients. Thank you very much. I have a bonus question for all three of you, and it's going to be a yes or no answer. We'll call this the lightning, lightning round, starting with Harry, then Scott, and then Bernard. Question is, all of this excitement in the burgeoning healthcare wearables field, is this going to attract startups that will be launched by, let's say, millennials or anybody who's who's under 30 now? I know millennials are in their 30s. Anybody who's under 30 now, is this going to attract a lot of brainstorming, and are they going to be the ones to create the next device? or is it going to be scientists who've been working on this stuff for years and finally will have a breakthrough in the next five years? So millennials or older scientists? Harry Greenspun, yes or no to millennials or scientists? Quickly. I'm going to have to say definitely millennials, and I think good collaboration with the, uh, with the older folks. Thank you. Scott Lundstrom, quick. Yeah, I have to, I have to bet on the millennials. Ah, okay. And by the way, they're not called millennials anymore. They're the yawn ah, generation. They're staying home, knitting, crocheting, and playing shuffleboard. Don't blame me. Look it up. Taylor Swift and Mark Zuckerberg are in the forefront of the yawn generation. I'm only reporting what I hear. Bernard Schweitzer, millennials are <laughs> older scientists. Bernard? Uh, I, I also bet on the millennials uh, because I you think do- they are more um, fashionists and they really can drive the market. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Harry Greenspun, MD at Deloitte, Scott Lundstrom at IDC, Bernard Schweitzer at SAP. I thought it was a great conversation, great savvy insights, and thanks for playing so well in the sandbox and answering my questions that you are not prepared for. Really appreciate it. Shout-outs to SAP underscore healthcare. I think that's Susan who's been tweeting along and capturing all kinds of words of wisdom. Uh, they actually say, convenience, fashion, always-on capabilities, and ease of charging are key to make health wearables a success. And I'll add amen to that, as well as measurable results. And I want to do a shout-out to uh, everybody who helps support this show. Karen Geraldo, thanks for tweeting and listening. She's one of our, our biggest loyal fans here. And uh, I want to say thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team. I'll be back tomorrow. Yes, it's the fifth live show this week. Tomorrow, we're talking about future of business with Game Changers, Connected Cars, Commercial vehicles, personal vehicles, where is the money to be made? You don't want to miss this one. 10 a.m. Eastern here on the Business Channel. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Speaking of cars, fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.